0: Hello and welcome back to Everyday Anarchism, the show that finds anarchism, mutual aid, cooperation, non-domination in your everyday life. I'm your host, Graham Colbertson, and this is another episode in Anarchism 101, in which I read an important anarchist text and then have a scholar come on and discuss that text, the author, and the historical context. Today, the text is an excerpt from Mikhail or Michael Bakunin's text, God and the State, Later this month, I will be speaking with Mark Lyer about this text and Bakunin's place as one of the fathers of anarchism. After the music, God and the State. What is authority? Is it the inevitable power of the natural laws which manifest themselves in the necessary concatenation and succession of phenomena in the physical and social worlds? Indeed, against these laws, revolt is not only forbidden, it is even impossible. We may misunderstand them or not know them at all, but we cannot disobey them because they constitute the basis and fundamental conditions of our existence. They envelop us, penetrate us, regulate all our movements, thoughts, and acts. Even when we believe that we disobey them, we only show their omnipotence. We are absolutely the slaves of these laws. But in such slavery, there is no humiliation. Or rather, it is not slavery at all. For slavery supposes an external master, a legislator, outside of him whom he commands. While these laws are not outside of us, they are inherent in us. They constitute our being, our whole being, physically, intellectually, and morally. We live, we breathe, we act, we think, we wish only through these laws. Without them we are nothing. We are not. Whence, then, could we derive the power and the wish to rebel against them? In his relation to natural laws, but one liberty is possible to man, that of recognizing and applying them on an ever-extending scale in conformity with the object of collective and individual emancipation or humanization which he pursues. These laws, once recognized, exercise an authority which is never disputed by the mass of men. One must, for instance, be at bottom either a fool or a theologian. Or at least a metaphysician, jurist, or bourgeois economist to rebel against the law by which twice two make four. One must have faith to imagine that fire will not burn nor water drown. Except, indeed, recourse be had to some subterfuge founded in its turn on some other natural law. But these revolts, or rather these attempts at or foolish fancies of an impossible revolt are decidedly the exception. For in general, it may be said that the mass of men in their daily lives acknowledge the government of common sense, that is, of the sum of the natural laws generally recognized in an almost absolute fashion. The great misfortune is that a large number of natural laws, already established as such by science, remain unknown to the masses, thanks to the watchfulness of these tutelary governments that exist, as we know. Only for the good of the people. There is another difficulty. Namely that the major portion of the natural laws connected with the development of human society, which are quite as necessary, invariable, fatal as the laws that govern the physical world, have not been duly established and recognized by science itself. Once they shall have been recognized by science, and then from science, by means of an extensive system of popular education and instruction, shall have passed into the consciousness of all, the question of liberty will be entirely solved. The most stubborn authorities must admit that then there will be no need either of political organization or direction or legislation. Three things which, whether they emanate from the will of the sovereign or from the vote of a parliament elected by universal suffrage, and even should they conform to the system of natural laws, which has never been the case and never will be the case, are always equally fatal and hostile to the liberty of the masses, from the very fact that they impose upon them a system of external and therefore despotic laws. The liberty of man consists solely in this, that he obeys natural laws because he has himself recognized them as such, and not because they have been externally imposed upon him by any extrinsic will whatever, divine or human, collective or individual. Suppose a learned academy, composed of the most illustrious representatives of science, suppose this academy charged with legislation for and the organization of society and that inspired only by the purest love of truth it frames none but laws in absolute harmony with the latest discoveries of science well i maintain for my part that such legislation and such organization would be a monstrosity and that for two reasons first that human science is always and necessarily imperfect and that comparing what it has discovered with what remains to be discovered, we may say that it is still in its cradle. So that we were to try to force the practical life of men, collective as well as individual, into strict and exclusive conformity with the latest data of science, we should condemn society as well as individuals to suffer martyrdom on a bed of procrustes, which would soon end by dislocating and stifling them life ever remaining an infinitely greater thing than science. The second reason is this. A society which should obey legislation emanating from a scientific academy, not because it understood itself the rational character of this legislation, in which case the existence of the academy would become useless, but because this legislation emanating from the academy was imposed in the name of a science which it venerated without comprehending. Such a society would be a society not of men, but of brutes. It would be a second edition of those missions in Paraguay which submitted so long to the government of the Jesuits. It would surely and rapidly descend to the lowest stage of idiocy. But there is still a third reason which would render such a government impossible. Namely, that a scientific academy invested with a sovereignty, so to speak, absolute, even if it were composed of the most illustrious men, would infallibly and soon end in its own moral and intellectual corruption. Even today, with the few privileges allowed them, such as the history of all academies, the greatest scientific genius, from the moment that he becomes an academician, an officially licensed savant, inevitably lapses into sluggishness. He loses his spontaneity, his revolutionary hardiness, and that troublesome and savage energy characteristic of the grandest geniuses ever called to destroy old tottering worlds and lay the foundations of new. He undoubtedly gains in politeness, in utilitarian and practical wisdom, what he loses in power of thought. In a word, he becomes corrupted. It is the characteristic of privilege, and of every privileged position... To kill the mind and heart of men. The privileged man, whether politically or economically, is a man depraved in heart and mind. That is a social law which admits of no exception, and is as applicable to entire nations as to classes, corporations, and individuals. It is the law of equality, the supreme condition of liberty and humanity. The principal object of this treatise, is precisely to demonstrate this truth in all the manifestations of human life. A scientific body, to which had been confided the government of society, would soon end by devoting itself no longer to science at all, but to quite another affair. And that affair as in the case of all established powers, would be its own eternal perpetuation by rendering the society confided to its care ever more stupid and consequently more in need of its government and direction. But that which is true of scientific academies is also true of all constituent and legislative assemblies, even those chosen by universal suffrage. In the latter case, They may renew their composition, it is true, but this does not prevent the formation in a few years' time of a body of politicians, privileged in fact, though not in law, who, devoting themselves exclusively to the direction of the public affairs of a country, finally form a sort of political aristocracy or oligarchy. Witness the United States of America and Switzerland. Consequently, no external legislation and no authority, one for that matter being inseparable from the other, and both tending to the servitude of society and the degradation of the legislators themselves. Does it follow that I reject all authority? Far from me such a thought. In the manner of boots, I refer to the authority of the bootmaker. Concerning houses, canals, or railroads, I consult that of the architect or engineer. For such or such special knowledge, I apply to such or such a savant but I allow neither the bootmaker, nor the architect, nor the savant to impose his authority upon me. I listen to them freely and with all the respect merited by their intelligence, their character, their knowledge, reserving always my incontestable right of criticism and censure. I do not content myself with consulting a single authority in any special branch. I consult several. I compare their opinions and choose that which seems to me the soundest, but I recognize no infallible authority even in special questions. Consequently, whatever respect I may have for the honesty and the sincerity of such or such an individual, I have no absolute faith in any person. Such a faith would be fatal to my reason, to my liberty, and even to the success of my undertakings. It would immediately transform me into a stupid slave, an instrument of the will and interests of others. If I bow before the authority of the specialists and avow my readiness to follow, To a certain extent, and as long as may seem to me necessary, their indications and even their directions, it is because their authority is imposed upon me by no one, neither by men nor by God. Otherwise, I would repel them with horror and bid the devil take their counsels, their directions and their services, certain that they would make me pay by the loss of my liberty and self-respect for such scraps of truth wrapped in a multitude of lies as they might give me. I bow before the authority of special men because it is imposed upon me by my own reason. I am conscious of my inability to grasp, in all its detailed and positive developments, any very large portion of human knowledge. The greatest intelligence would not be equal to a comprehension of the whole. Thence results, for science as well as industry, the necessity of the division and association of labor I receive and I give, such is human life. Each directs and is directed, in his turn. Therefore there is no fixed and constant authority, but a continual exchange of mutual, temporary, and above all voluntary authority and subordination. This same reason forbids me, then, to recognize a fixed, constant, and universal authority, because there is no universal man, no man capable of grasping in that wealth of detail, without which the application of science to life is impossible, all the sciences, all the branches of social life. And if such universality could ever be realized in a single man, and if he wished to take advantage thereof to impose his authority upon us, it would be necessary to drive this man out of society, because his authority would inevitably reduce all the others to slavery and imbecility. I do not think that society ought to maltreat men of genius, as it has done hitherto, but neither do I think it should indulge them too far still less accord them any privileges or exclusive rights whatsoever. And that for three reasons. First, because it would often mistake a charlatan for a man of genius. Second, because through such a system of privileges, it might transform into a charlatan, even a real man of genius, demoralize him and degrade him. And finally, because it would establish a master over itself. To sum up, we recognize then the absolute authority of science. Because the sole object of science is the mental reproduction, as well-considered and systematic as possible, of the natural laws inherent in the material, intellectual, and moral life of both the physical and the social worlds. These two worlds constituting, in fact, but one and the same natural world. Outside of this only legitimate authority, legitimate because rational and in harmony with human liberty, we declare all other authorities false, arbitrary, and fatal. We recognize the absolute authority of science, but we reject the infallibility and universality of the savant. In our church, if I may be permitted to use for a moment an expression which I so detest, church and state are my two betes noires, in our church, as in the Protestant church, we have a chief, an invisible Christ, science. And like the Protestants, more logical even than the Protestants, We will suffer neither pope, nor council, nor conclaves of infallible cardinals, nor bishops, nor even priests. Our Christ differs from the Protestant and Christian Christ in this, that the latter is a personal being, ours impersonal. The Christian Christ, already completed in an eternal past, presents himself as a perfect being, while the completion and perfection of our Christ, science, are ever in the future. Which is equivalent to saying that they will never be realized. Therefore, in recognizing absolute science as the only absolute authority, we in no way compromise our liberty. I mean by the words absolute science, the truly universal science which would reproduce ideally to its fullest extent and in all its infinite detail, the universe. The system or coordination of all the natural laws manifested by the incessant development of the world. It is evident that such a science, the sublime object of all the efforts of the human mind, will never be fully and absolutely realized. Our Christ, then, will remain eternally unfinished, which must considerably take down the pride of his licensed representatives among us. Against that God, the Son, in whose name they assume to oppose upon us their insolent and pedantic authority, we appeal to God, the Father, who is the real world, real life, of which he, the Son, is only a too imperfect expression. Whilst we real beings, living, working, struggling, loving, aspiring, enjoying, and suffering are its immediate representatives. But while rejecting the absolute, universal, and infallible authority of men of science, we willingly bow before the respectable, although relative, quite temporary and very restricted authority of the representatives of special sciences, asking nothing better than to consult them by turns, and very grateful for such precious information as they may extend to us. On condition of their willingness to receive from us on occasions when, and concerning matters about which, we are more learned than they. In general, we ask nothing better than to see men endowed with great knowledge, great experience, great minds, and above all great hearts, exercise over us a natural and legitimate influence, freely accepted, and never imposed in the name of any official authority whatsoever celestial or terrestrial. We accept all natural authorities and all influences of fact, but none of right. For every authority or every influence of right, officially imposed as such, becoming directly an oppression and a falsehood, would inevitably impose upon us, as I believe I have sufficiently shown, slavery and absurdity. In a word, We reject all legislation, all authority, and all privileged, licensed, official, and legal influence, even though arising from universal suffrage, convinced that it can turn only to the advantage of a dominant minority of exploiters against the interests of the immense majority in subjection to them. This is the sense in which we are really anarchists. Okay, that was an excerpt from Mikhail Bakunin's God and the State. From Anarchism 101 for Everyday Anarchism. Remember, I'll be having a discussion later this month or just further down the feed with Mark Lyer about this text and Bakunin's life and thoughts. Remember also that I need your help financially if possible. You can go to everydayanarchism.com and make a donation. You can also sign up for my newsletter. And if you're unable to give, Leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or just telling a friend is another way to help the show. For now, all that's left to say is that the music, which you're about to hear, is by David Hill.